everybody. Salutations. Uh, you guys all know my name. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and uh, I am the the <laughs> the writer, the creator, the uh, editor in chief, and the bottle of tartar sauce around here. I really wish I would have said that at the presentation. I call I said the big burrito, but I really wish I would have said I'm the tartar sauce. That would have uh, been awesome. Tonight we will be uh, going over this book right here the earth not a globe hopefully my computer my my screen is not freezing on me you can see that the earth not a globe volume one and right there volume two beautiful right so the earth not a globe i i want to just convey to you all how important these this book is to me these books and why this was a passion project it I, I came into the, the flat earth awakening, you know, back with really like the first generation there. And it was, I think when word of the earth, not a globe got out, it was like mid 2016, late 2016, people started talking about this. Now, back then it was uh, these like newspaper uh, pictures from like the British library that it was just these one page sheets, you know, like the, the photo copies and they're all crooked and stuff. And that was the first time when I saw the Earth Not a Globe for the first time. I'm using the word the first time a lot, but it was the first time since coming to the flat Earth that I didn't feel alone. Because I'm like, oh my goodness, there's all these other writers out there. I'm seeing these writers and you know names at that time. I didn't know who they were, like John Williams, not the not the composer John Williams, uh, Lady Blount. Um, I like to call her Blunt, Rebecca. Rex me. He's like, no, I think it's it's Lady Blount, um, and these individuals in the 1890s, and they're having they were having the same discussions a hundred years earlier. Like all the discussions we were having back in 2016, 2017, we were seeing this the same discussions being had a hundred years earlier. It's to learn that there was this you know this whole movement of of flat earthers back then. They called themselves the Zetetics. And so this was a dream project of mine to be able to lift it off the page, get it in book. So for everyone listening, this is the first time right here. This is the first time that the Earth Not a Globe Review, the newspaper from the 1890s, has been put into book form. This has ne never been done. It was a huge behemoth challenge. Uh, that's why Rebecca is joining me tonight. Now, fast forward to the year 2022, and uh, this wasn't the first project that Rebecca and I worked on, we actually worked on another flat earth book. Um, but I told her from the very get go, my dream was to get this lifted off the page. And so for the first book back in the summer of 2022, uh, we both, we did this together. We tag team and, and, uh, Rebecca would edit a couple newspapers and I would edit a couple and she would edit a couple and then we would put them all together. Um, so Hopefully Rebecca doesn't mind me telling this. I <laughs> I hand in uh, my copies to her, so uh, my my edited copies, and we're putting them together. And she's like calling me on the phone, like like really upset. She's like, "What's this?" You know, and she was not happy with my editing work. I mean, she was coming down really hard on me. She's like, "You know, this is this is not the quality that I want. We need to do better." And and I'm sitting there like she she will even say she could tell I was like kind of frustrated, kind of flustered, a little angry. And because she's like she's coming, I mean, coming at me really hard. And I'm sitting there going, I could I could 
I could let my ego get in the way and, you know, get defensive and come back, come back at her. Or I could realize that she is very, very passionate about this and she wants to do good work. And, um, and it was in that moment where I realized I want to hire this woman to work for me because if she is going to be this devoted to good quality, like I want her on my team. And so from that moment on, uh, I brought Rebecca on and she is a full-time employee with the unexpected cosmology and it all happened with the earth, not a globe review. So, uh, we're going to start digging into this tonight. And my, my hope is to skim through a number of articles. There's probably no way we're getting through it all tonight. We have a, a PDF that is prepared. That is samples of like 60 pages. Let's see how many pages is the first book. The first book is about 300 pages and then you have the second volume. So, and by the way, we, with the second volume, we didn't get all the way through, um, all the, the uh, newspapers either. There's still more after that, though. I think we got the bulk of them. And if there is a, ever a volume three, it's of course going to depend on people's interest. So just give you guys a little bit of backstory with this. One of the things I noted, noticed with a lot of these flat earthists uh, is that they were a lot of them, like before anybody knew what the, the word, the Torah was, these were, these were mostly, <clears throat> excuse me. These were like Torah keepers. I need a drink of coffee here. The treasurer and the secretary, as well as the editor, editor-in-chief. I need another cup of coffee. I'm sorry, guys. John Williams. Again, not the not the musician, uh, but John Williams. He was a Seventh-day uh, Adventist. In fact, most of the people involved, they were Seventh-day, which means they kept, they kept the Sabbath. They ate clean. They kept the dietary laws. They were doing a lot of Torah. And these people, like, that was really, like, pretty cutting edge for back then. Um, so think about what's going on in the 1890s London. You have Queen Queen Elizabeth is is ruling. You got uh, the year 1892 that The Earth Not a Globe came out. You had uh, Sherlock Holmes being published for the first time. That was the bestseller of the day. Uh, you had Jack the Ripper still being talked about, right? Loose on the streets. And uh, John Williams, interestingly enough, he hosted the first meeting of the Universal Zetetic Society. Eventually, the, back then, the Flat Earthists, they referred to themselves as Zetetics. Nobody knew them as Flat Earthists or Flat Earthers. They were the uh, Zetetic astronomers. And he hosted the first meeting at his house of the Universal Zetetic Society, which eventually became the Flat Earth Society. I know you say that and people like wince and they're like, oh, control opposition. You know, their their alarms are going off. Uh, the Flat Earth Society did not become controlled opposition, I would say at least 20, 30 years ago. Uh, before that, it was in the hands of some uh, individuals who were really trying to push this truth against a lot of opposition. Um, so you have a, uh, included in this paper is a very popular name amongst flat um, earth mythology history, Lady Elizabeth Blount. Uh, she lived in Bath and she came from money. She married into money. So this is someone who uh, had a lot of money, very fashionable, was very artistic. You know, she wrote songs, poetry, stories, and she, to the end of her days, uh, she got very involved in flat earthism. And in fact, there's stories of her when she was an old woman and kind of dying and flat earth, the whole flat earth conversation was, was no longer on the table. 
uh, World War One had happened. People were moving on. You know, Europe's falling apart with World War Two. She's getting old, and there are stories that she would kind of just like sit there quietly in the corner and. And whenever the globe, anyone would mention the globe, like her family learned not to say that around her because she would just like sneer at them if, if they did, if she did. But um, so where this book came from, uh, they it was really Samuel uh, Robotham. A lot of you probably know the name. He was the one, he went by Parallax at first, AKA Parallax. And he started Earth Not a Globe. That was his first publication he put out a book. And he died in 1884, and it was through the work of Robotham that a guy named John Hamden decided to do uh, challenge Alfred Russell Wallace, who was one of Darwin's main boys. So you guys can, if you can picture yourself in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, you know, like you know, we we talk about people like Elon Musk, you know, Bill Nye, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, these kind of people. Back then, it was it was Charles Darwin, right? He was he was he he died, I guess I guess you know right as uh, Origin of the Species came out. But uh, the people who were close to him and uh, over there in Oxford and Cambridge, London, all around then. So John Hampton challenges Alfred Russell Wallace to a match on whether globe Earth or flat Earth is correct, and this is where we get the Bedford Canal, and. Ironically, uh, you know, the court or the judge ruled in favor of uh, of Russell Wallace, and you know, it looked like there were, you know, they basically declared there was curvature, and the Bedford Canal became the number one propaganda for the next hundred years up until the space race. For the least the next 50, 70 years, all children were taught in books that we know the Earth is not a globe because of the Bedford Canal. And it's absolutely ridiculous because it has not only been vindicated. I mean, we know, we know absolutely any laser proves it, that there is no curvature on water, especially not the Bedford Canal. You could go out there now and it would prove that there's no curvature, but they don't want to address that anymore. Anyways, with that, we break into the Earth, not a globe. So this publication started 1892, and they wanted to really get the discussion going. And I would say that flat Earthism it, it made a it it really was gaining momentum in the 1890s, and it was probably World War One that destroyed the conversation, right? We all keep talking about how you know they have to start some war to to destroy the truther movement. Now it's it's just like that. World War One came along, nobody was talking about it afterwards. Um, it, it's, it's not the kind of thing you probably want to talk about when your life is destroyed from, you know, your house and all your loved ones are killed off and that kind of stuff. So opening it up on the first page here, there's the two covers I showed you, the Earth Not a Globe Review, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Of course, they're both available at uh, The Unexpected Cosmology. You can come to the website. You can pick up your own copy. For those of you in the TUC Book Club, thank you for your support. Uh, these were past elections. I, uh, the Earth Not a Globe Volume 2, I think, was uh, last month's selection. So uh, we've had that rather recently. And there's a picture right there of Lady Elizabeth Blount on the cover. Very interesting woman. Like I said, she was Seventh-day Sabbath. She um, had some interesting ideas, too. I mean, she's talking about uh, um, androgyny. Uh, she believed that Adam and uh, Eve were androgynous. 
And that's just really interesting for somebody in, I mean, this, this shows you how cutting edge she was. This was a very, like a woman who was very out there in her conversations. I mean, what kind of churchgoers in the 1890s were even having the conversation, uh, whether she was right or not, but even having the conversation that Adam and Eve might've been androgynous. That's pretty cutting edge stuff. All right, the Earth Not a Globe Review. This is number one, January 1893. And Rebecca, any time, uh, I, I told Rebecca, she is not a, does not have to feel obliged to jump in, but anytime she wants to jump in and talk about anything, because she did the editing work on this. And you guys see how beautiful it is. I see you just turned off your microphone. I was just going to tell you that uh, it's pronounced Samuel Robottom. And I was looking to find the funny story because uh, somebody he, claimed to have known he, him. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, is the H silent? He said, yeah, it's, it's pronounced Robottom. And the only reason um, I know that is because somewhere in the book, uh, someone misspells his name, you know, saying that he knew Parallax and he, and he refers to him as Robottom. And that's how he spells it. And, um, in some of my research, uh, I was reading a funny little story about, you know, about that particular passage in volume one, which I, I don't remember where it is. Maybe I can find it, but you know, he couldn't even, he says he, he knew him so well, he couldn't even be bothered to get his name right. So <laughs> get the spelling of his name right because it's pronounced differently than it sounds. Well, that's see, thank you. That, that is a need to know fact that I did not know. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, all right, so you guys will see here in the in the greeting, uh, January 1893, issue number one, you're going to get a really big sense of their writing style. They're very quirky people. And, of course, you know, they're writing this back in the typewriter days, right? Not a lot of room for, uh, you know, for mistakes. Greeting, it may be thought that there are su a sufficient number of periodicals in the market without adding one more to the extensive list. There are plenty, no doubt, if they were all of the right kind, but are they? How many of them professed to stand by the word of God as true and faithful in all its parts? And of those who profess to uphold the sacred scriptures as inspired of God, how many believe and advocate the literal truth of the account of creation as recorded therein? Or the various descriptions given by them of the works of God as found in what is called nature? Not one, at least we know not of any. Not a single Christian editor who in the face of the so-called science, uh, quote unquote science of the 19th century, dare contend for the literal truth of the Bible text given at the heading of this paper. We repeat, we know of none. We know of many and some loud, some loud in the profession that they believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God, who yet have declined to allow us or our friends to uphold in their columns the literal truth of the Bible and all its references to the material creation. We deplore this fact, and hence the necessity has been laid upon us with all our weakness, physic, uh, physically or numerically, to come to the rescue in the Earth Review. God is able to use the weakest instrumentality to his own glory and to the confusion of the enemies of his truth. Our trust is in God and in the faith, faithfulness of his word and all its teachings from Genesis to Revelation. Our motto is, let God be true, though every man be a liar. And that, of course, is a quote comes from Paul. And just so you guys know, I'm not going to be auto-correcting this with, like, saying Elohim or Yahushua HaMashiach. 
because I really want to convey where they were at that time in history in London, English people, they weren't Hebrew scholars. But what's interesting to note here is that um, if I if I talk too much, we'll never get through this. But Back then, there were no young earth creationists. Young earth creationism didn't come about to the Apollo missions. We're talking like 1970. So these people were what we we would call gap theorists. You know, they believed that Genesis 1-1 to 1-2 was a recreation event. And, you know, it was a very different um, uh, flavor of Christianity from what we know with modern day evangelicalism. And what they're talking about here is that, you know, people don't believe the word of God is true is because it, it, it was pretty common back then. Like people understood the flat earth. People understood that the Bible is a flat earth book. And you're going to see all through this paper, they're going to make a case for that and just saying, look, you, you, that's your problem. You're evolutionist because you don't actually believe his word is true. You don't believe his testimony. If Genesis is not to be relied upon in its description of creation, how shall we trust Exodus? That's a pretty good point. If the Old Testament is not true, what will become of the new? That's a pretty good point. If the creator through his servants, the prophets, has not correctly described his works, how can we trust him for our salvation? That's a pretty good point. A lot of people trust him for their salvation, but they don't trust anything else in the Bible. As the great teacher who came from God himself declared, if ye believe not his writings, they put in the brackets there, Moses, how shall ye believe my words? They stand or fall together. Our Lord says so, and every logical and candid mind must see it is so. We are prepared to accept the conclusion, for we feel sure that no fact in nature is contrary to Bible teaching. It is well known that the teachings of modern astronomy are opposed to the teachings of the Bible. But it is not so well understood that all known facts in nature are in harmony with Bible representations. Thomas Paine, in his so-called Age of Reason, says the following, The two beliefs, modern astronomy and the Bible, cannot be held together in the same mind. He who thinks he believes both has thought very little of either. Ouch. And he's talking about the Copernican Revolution there. It's amazing how honest, like you talk to Christians today, they're like, no, no, that's not true. You, you're reading too much in the Bible. It's not a flat earth book. Back then, they all knew it was. Like they all knew that it was geocentric, flat earth, you know, uh, the, the, the wandering stars may be spinning around up there, but we're, we're not. This witness is true here, but he makes the very common mistake of assuming or supposing that astronomy may, that astronomy may be true. And hence, he draws the unwarranted conclusion that the Bible must be false. This is not reason, but assumption, and is surely an unpardonable offense against good logic on the part of one who professes to reason. We call the attention of our special friends to its inconclusiveness. Give us facts or sound, sound reasons based upon facts, and we will listen to our opponents with attention. But it will be the province of the earth review to expose from time to time the flimsy pretext for reason which so frequently are placed before us by those who oppose the word of the living god on questions of cosmology is this not beautiful or what we want the facts of science not in its every varying theories and contradictions for these facts we shall ever be glad to find room 
in proportion to their importance in our space. But we candidly confess at the outset that we do not know of any one fact in nature which conflicts with the accounts of the creation of or of, of the creation or universe. As set forth in the Holy Scriptures, the God of creation or of nature is the God of revelation. And both these we believe to be in harmony. These harmonies we propose to show to our readers as we have opportunity in future numbers of our little paper. We invite our friends all over the outstretched earth to come forward and help us. They can strengthen our hands with means and with matter. Short, pointed, and pithy articles or letters written on one side of the paper only and sent to the editor will receive careful attention. It's funny, I, I just sent out the same call recently asking for writers to come in to my magazine publication. Also marked in prepaid newspaper articles or cuttings connected with the subject, subscriptions for the paper must be sent to the secretary, Mr. John Williams, 32 Bankside, Southwark, London. Uh, and uh, by the way, he lived like right under the uh, London Bridge, right on the River Thames. As we are entirely undenominational, we are not going to attempt to establish another sectarian church or to support any particular existing one. The Universal Zetetic Society is simply banded together to contend for the truth and honor of God's word, especially as related to his works in nature and creation. And the Earth Review is its organ. We therefore invite the cooperation of all earnest-minded men by whatever distinctive names they may unfortunately happen to be called. <laughs> it's like distant, <laughs> saying you might have a really goofy name, but whatever you're called, uh, you're welcome to come. We are, we, we are certain that all who are concerned for the honor of God's word and all who desire to see nature honestly interpreted must acknowledge that our aim and purpose is good. To all such, we send greeting. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? But again, if God be for us, who, with any hope of success, can be against us? All right, next article. I, there's a lot I want to get through tonight. Uh, creation versus salvation or illogical uh, illogical Christians. This is a – they don't get into the science yet, but some of the stuff is really quirky, and um, this, this one's solid. We are often advised by well-meaning Christians who are ignorant of the bearings of our contention to allow the subject of the plain earth to drop and to join with them in proclaiming what they are pleased to call, quote-unquote, the gospel. As we are going to pr uh, press, we have received another gratuitous piece of advice of the same nature. Our friend writes, you believe the earth, the earth is flat and stands still. I may give it a passing notice. I am surprised to find a man of so much intelligence and learning should persist in such notions. Is it not a clear fact that we can determine the approximate size of the globe? And if you go in a straight line in any direction, you will come to the place from which you started. And how do you account for the seasons and the difference in the length of the days at different seasons and tidal motions, et cetera, et cetera? I think you would be better engaged in helping to swell the worldwide cry of the gospel. Don't you think so? Does this, for anyone listening, is this not the exact same thing that you have been told by your relatives and friends over and over and over again? That they're like, like, they, this guy clearly hasn't done any research on the flat earth. I mean, he's asking, like, how does it work with the sun and the, like, he hasn't put like more than 
three minutes notice uh, thought into this. And of course, he just reverts back to, you know, I am morally superior because I got the gospel. I'm telling people about the gospel. Like, that's not really important. For him, obviously, evolution, the Copernican revolution is important. He's just trying to play it off like, you know, he's above any of this kind of stuff. And he's, I don't think he is. It's just, you guys have all got this from people. In answer to the last question, we say decidedly no. Not at the expense of leaving off teaching the plain truth. It is undeniable that the Holy Scriptures teach that the earth is stationary, that it rests on foundations and pillars, and that it is established so fast that it cannot be moved. We therefore contend that if, as some of our Christian friends would have us believe, the Bible is not true in its material teachings respecting the universe, it is not reliable in its promises of spiritual blessings. That's a really good argument to make. I mean, if, if, if Yahuwah, the Most High, if he's, if he's lying to us about his creation, you know, his own testimony concerning himself and his day-to-day -day actions, how, why are we finding his, uh, his salvation so trustworthy too? There's a lot of stake in this, and they understood this back then. But we maintain that the Bible is true, true to fact and to everyday observation, and that the earth does not move. In future numbers, we hope to give good proofs of the earth's immobility for those who need them. But in the meantime, we have a right to ask for some one proof. And we only ask for one of the earth's supposed terrible motions. It appears stationary. It feels stationary. Then why should we give up the evidence of our God-given senses for the sake of a mere astronomical and unsupported assumption? Now, just so you guys all know, this is 1892. Going up to Einstein, they were the the uh, geocentrists were blowing this argument out of the water. The Copernicans had nothing. Every single you can look up every single test that was ever made. The, the Copernicans, time and again, were proving that the Earth was stationary and not moving. This is why they had to bring out Einstein to come up with the theory of relativity. The, the, whole, the whole idea of a Copernican uh, moving glo globular Earth is all based on his mathematical formulas. That's it. There, there's not one test that will ever show that the Earth is moving. There is much more behind this question of the shape of the earth than our good-natured but illogical advisors are aware of. If we are credited as we are by those who know us, with at least an average share of common sense and a little more than the average amount of intelligence and learning, how is it that our advisors, who for the most part have never really studied the question, it's evident this guy hasn't, the guy asking the question hasn't studied anything, which we have studied, and with Understanding its importance as supplying a good foundation for our confidence in the sure word of God, does this not sound like a conversation you've all had? They, you know, they all claim our ignorance, like we don't know what we're talking about, and we're like, dude, we've like sit down, you've brought a knife to a gunfight, we've we've looked this over. Like we came to our conclusion that the earth is is flat. We went against all the indoctrination because we actually studied this one out. We maintain that if the Bible is not true respecting the material creation, it is not reliable uh, in its promises of salvation. 
and that it is perfectly useless to preach the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, to men who have lost their faith and the inspiration or truthfulness of the word of God. It is, moreover, a great pity when Christian friends unite with skeptical foes in support of godless science, falsely called science, avoid science falsely so-called, according to Paul, which strikes at the very foundation of the truth of the Creator's word. They incur a great responsibility in doing, and so doing, let them take heed. In answer to our correspondence questions, we say, it is not a clear fact that we can determine the approximate size of the globe. It is not a clear fact that the earth is a globe at all. Let proof be offered. And again, it is not possible to go in a straight line in any direction and come back to the place of starting. Any that it's funny, like people all assume that there's no like scientific experiment on that. To my knowledge, maybe if there is, I could be shown that, but it's just everyone just people were suing this back in the 1800s. Who in the 1800s actually walked in a straight line and came back to where they started? Like nobody. That, that never happened. But the guy assumed that you could. Any straight line is an impossibility on a spherical surface. Good point. But apart from this self-evident fact, no one has ever traveled or voyaged due north or due south and come back to the same place again. And to this day, actually, that's never happened in the south. Nobody has ever flown over this, uh, a documented trip, flown over the South Pole, and came back around again. It can't be done. The great ice barriers would prevent this. Yet our correspondent thoughtlessly says, in any direction, men can go around the world in an easterly or westerly direction, but this is also possible on a plane. Hence, it is no proof of the Earth's uh, sphericity. But our opponents do not seem to be able to discriminate in these things. It is the fault, doubtless, of our system of education, which crams young minds with other men's ideals instead of teaching them to think for themselves and to think cautiously and accurately. You see what I'm saying? These are the same conversations we're having today. People will come up. I can walk in any direction and come back. It's like, no, you can't. You can't do that. That's not the way it works. You can get on a plane. You can travel east. You can travel west. And you could, you know, end up going back around to the west again, but you can't go north, you can't go south, you can just you know, show up again. It doesn't work that way, particularly south. Let us hope that the Earth Review will help at least to raise inquiry and, to, and so teach men to think for themselves and not to leave all their thinking to professional and interested preachers of science. There is an evident need of such a paper as ours even apart from its advocacy of the truth of the Bible, if only to awaken candid inquiry. Let us hope that all lovers of truth, natural truth or spiritual, and all lovers of original ideas, possessing true freedom of thought, will rally around us and help us on towards a worldwide circulation of the Earth Review. All right, next section, Sabbath Musings, the glory of God. I'm going to guess uh, this is Lady Blount writing this. She was really big. I think she actually had a paper later on called Sabbath Musings. She was really big on, on keeping the seventh day. The inspired psalmist says that the heavens declare of glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Therefore, whatever some professed Christians affirm to the contrary, the subject of creation is connected with right views of God, his worship, and his glory. But if we would have a right conception of God and his glory, we must see to it that we have a right conception of his works and creation. 
You see how she's connecting this with the Sabbath? It is really amazing how when the Flat Earth Awakening kicked off again in 2015, it was connect, connected with Sabbath keeping and the Torah. It, 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 it really, I think there's something to it. Like if you're not going to believe his testimony about his creation, you're not going to believe Exodus, as they say. You're not going to believe Leviticus. You're not going to take any of that seriously. When you start to take his creation seriously, you're like, oh, okay, I want to start taking the rest of the book seriously. Uh, let's see what line I was on. I'll just make it up where I'm at. How, for instance, do we obtain an insight into the character of any great man, whether he be a poet, politician, sculptor, general, or king? It is not by his acts or his works, but suppose these acts or works are misrepresented to us or defaced by someone. Should we not have false and distorted views respecting the author, artist, or the maker of those things? And Old Testament is, is, is all those things, so distorted, total propaganda. Assuredly and, assuredly, and so it comes to pass in respect to the construction of the world, false views of the universe have led men into a misconception respecting the character of God. Preach it, sister. And even, alas, in many cases, to a denial of the very existence of such personal being. And, of course, atheism was, you know, a growing thing with, obviously, Darwinian evolution. They were seeing a lot of their contemporaries walk away from the faith in their own day. Let us then endeavor to come back to first principles. The world exists and must have come from somewhere. It is unthinkable to say it came by chance or any fortuitous concourse of atoms. Its wonderful variety, the general correlation and adaptability of its various parts, and the exact and never-failing motions of all the heavenly bodies prove to any well-balanced and unpreju uh, uh, excuse me, unprejudiced mind that some grand and controlling intelligence directs and rules over all. As the, and they're getting to the heart of this. They're getting to the heart of this is why the evolutionists wanted a globe Earth so bad. Because, of course, you know, you can have, you're not going to have an intimate creator in the same way as you are with a flat, motionless plane underneath the firmament. As the Apostle uh, Paul declares, the invisible things of him from the creation to the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. A grand truth lies in this statement of the apostle. Paul was no fool. It is allowed on all sides alike by friend and foe, skeptic and Christian. M. Renan and the Archbishop of Canterbury, I'm guessing M. Renan is somebody that they all knew back then, that no one man has had more influence in forming Christianity the history of which has for 18 centuries been making the history of the civilized world than the Apostle Paul. <laughs> That's That opens up a whole can of worms there for some of you guys. You're like, yep, yeah, yeah, Paul. <laughs> Paul definitely uh, gave the face of Christianity, no doubt about that. And I agree with that too. His name will be had in uh, honor when the names of the adversaries of the truth will have sunk into merited and everlasting oblivion. And this great man agrees with the psalmist in teaching that the creation as set forth in the Bible and as found in what some call quote-unquote nature sets forth unmistakably the grand truth that God is. Now, this is a fundamental ver a veridity, a verity. 
and the foundation of all true faith, God is. And he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's another Paul quote. Now, this faith is, on the one hand, neither an unreasoning uh, credulity, nor, on the other hand, is it a bigoted disbelief. It is based on an intelligent and reasonable understanding of the things that are seen above and around us. The book of nature is open to all men, but it must be read and studied without prejudice and without philosophical bias. We must come to it like little children with the honest desire to know the truth and not attempt to read into it our own nor anyone else's plausible or implausible hypothesis. If we do this patiently and persistently, we shall be rewarded. The grand and ineffaceable truth will dawn upon us that God is. We shall see his glory in the bright and blazing sun as he goes forth majestically, like a giant, to run his daily course. We shall own his power and Godhead when the moon, queen of the night, rises in quiet and stately splendor to reflect her silver radiance in ever-rippling stream. And we shall confess his wisdom and unfailing skill when, at night, we gaze up in the firmament and behold 10,000 glittering gems shining in matchless beauty and shedding upon the earth their silent influences as they nightly perform their appointed revolutions. Truly, we shall then confess with the psalmist that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Wow, 10,000 stars, that would be nice. Here in, in Charleston, I'm lucky to see maybe <laughs> not that many. The firmament showeth, this is London, by the way. So I guess the lights might have really gone off in London back then. The firmament showeth his handiwork, that vast and incomparable structure which spans the heavens, the firmament and covers the earth with its, with its capacious dome, divides the waters which are above the firmament from the waters which are under the firmament. Isn't this incredible? Like people telling you this in the 1890s that there's, you're actually looking at water above the firmament up there. And when we realize something of the tremendous size of this tent-like covering, spanning with one mighty arch across the whole of the outstretched earth, when we considered its weight, its strength, its stability, and the avowed purpose for which it was made by the Creator, we can unhesitatingly, uh, that's an interesting word, unhes, I can't even say it, I know what unhesitant is, but ingly, and devoutly again exclaim with the psalmist, the firmament showeth his handiwork. No wonder such a work occupied the whole of one day. The third in the great and marvelous work of the six days creation. Job, one of the finest, and certainly one of the most ancient of true philosophers, when comparing the works of God with the puny works of man, ask, hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and is a molten looking glass? Job 37, 18. People love to you know, say that when he stretched out the sky, that's space, right? The whole second day of creation was, you know, he, he spends all the creation week on this little earth, but on the second day, he, you know, works in the cosmos. And of course, Job is saying, nope, the sky is like a thick, you know, molten glass. Uh, it's the firmament, obviously. It is perhaps this mirror-like quality which the firmament possesses that makes unbelieving scientists 
think they can, with their glasses, peer into what they call space, which they affirm to be boundless. As well might a child gazing upon the bosom of a glassy lake affirm that it had no bottom, and that the sky and clouds reflected from its placid surface were slumbering in the unfathomed depths below and not above its waters. The idea of illimitable space, they're talking about outer space. I'm not sure if they used that term outer space a lot back then. Filled with an infinity of revolving worlds or globes is not only a bewildering idea unfounded on fact, but it directly tends to remove the creator or rather the idea of a creator far and farther away from this earthly plane of ours. It, it necessarily and logically leads to atheism. And they would know because they were there in that, in that generation. They were watching it happen. And too often, alas, it practically leads men there. The idea of heaven as a place, the abode of the eternal, becomes to the logical and thinking Newtonian a myth. And God, if he acknowledged such a, such a personal being at all, becomes farther and farther removed from the scene of all earthly operations. Whereas the Savior of the world who came down from heaven to do his Father's will taught his disciples to believe that heaven was not very far off, that it was directly and always above us, that God was concerned in the works of his hands, and that as our Father, he was near enough to hear the prayers of all those who call upon him in sincerity and truth. This is assuring this is comforting. God cares for the world, and he will punish those who afflict mankind with their selfishness, their greed, their falsehoods, and their oppressions. Yea, God has so loved the world, not the globe, as some misguided Christians have lately printed and perverted their sublime text with a ridiculous globe stamped on the paper. They're saying that people in the 1800s were trying to change the translation of John 3.16 to, and God so loved the globe. <laughs> I'm glad that didn't stick. Uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This we say is comforting, it is, it is assuring. And what they're basically saying here, uh, if there's anyone listening to this and trying to figure out the Hebrew cosmology, they're saying that heaven is not some dimension, a spiritual dimension that you can't see. It's actually right above the firmament. Like there's water up there, the stars and the sun, the moon is all in there. There's water up there and then heaven physically rests not that far away on top of it. But what's happening with outer space is they're pushing heaven billions upon billions upon trillions upon an unmeasurable distance further out till finally it just became this spiritual dimension somewhere. And they, they'll talk about that on the paper, how silly it is that Yahusha Hamashiach went straight up. If it like, he just needs like vanished like a ghost, you know, into heaven or whatever. But on the astronomical hypothesis, the world is like an uncared for orphan or a desolate wanderer. God is removed too far from us to be any practical use. And the idea of heaven is so vague that such a place, if it exists at all, may be anywhere or nowhere all around the globe or spirited away from us altogether beyond the bounds of time and space. Thus the Christian's hope is undermined and his faith is eaten away at the very core by this insidious and so-called scientific worm. This is most calamitous. 
Yet even some of our spiritual guides are either so false to their professions or are so deceived themselves that they cry out, it does not matter what shape the earth is. We don't care whether it be round or flat, square or oblong, so long as, yes, so long as they get a good living and hold a respectable position in society. Man, this cuts at the heart right here. This is what, like, <laughs> yeah, this is like, yeah, you, you want to go flat earth? You're not going to be respectable in society. You're not going to make that big living, right? Is this it? Such a confession really means, when put into plain language, we do not care whether the Bible be true or false in its record of creation, so long as our interest or our hope of salvation is assured. You hear this all the time. People, you know, is this a, what does this have to do with salvation? Is this a salvation issue? Because apparently that's, you know, all they ever care about talking about in life, right? They don't care about anything, but just making sure you believe you're good to go. You know, we don't need to talk about all this other stuff to know the creator better. But woe is pronounced against such easygoing shepherds of Israel. Isn't that interesting? They, these British people, they recognized that you're grafted into Israel. They just said it right there, that the shepherds of Israel. Woe to them. I mean, these guys were like really advanced in some ways. Woe to them who are leaving their flocks to become a prey to the devouring wolves of science, falsely so-called, as to as the great apostle intimates, intimates. Let us be on our guard. There are honorable exceptions to such false shepherds and teachers, and others are being raised up to warn us. We have quoted some of their noble testimonies. Let us give heed to these needful warnings. God has never left himself without witnesses to his truth, whether in nature or in revelation. We may show this, if the Lord permit, more fully another time as regards creation truth. In conclusion, we would call the attention of our readers to the seasonable warning given us by the Apostle Paul, where he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Colossians 2.8. And again, let us prove all things and hold fast that which is good. All right. That is, uh, let's see. Does the author put their name on that? I'm not sure the author put their name on that. That was Obviously. indeed by Lady Blount. It was. Yeah. Okay. I figured. All right. I'm going to jump to page 13. We're going to jump up to number four, issue number four, October 1893. We'll be reading about ships at sea. The time is getting away from me really quickly. And um, I'm re realizing here, this is a 76 page document. You know, we might have to make this a two two-week event because it's not going to get through the whole thing. And you see it starting out here, to him that stretch out the earth above the waters for his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136.6. Chips at sea. We have already given proofs that the earth we live on is an extended plane, and one good practical proof of this is quite sufficient to discredit all the so-called proofs of the earth's sphericity. The practical surveying of the surface of water proves that it is level. As far as I'm concerned, this is the best, you know, the best proof still uh, for the flat earth. You, you, the water is level. It's called sea level, right? You, you, you don't bend the surface of water. That doesn't happen. That's just a myth in order to make the globe work. I don't know 
anyone that really believes that, 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 I mean, it's just a serious level of cognitive dissonance that like water, like bends because I guess the magic of gravity that it, that it like conforms to a ball. I just, I, I still don't get it. And I don't know if anybody really does. We begin with practical proofs, but on the other hand, our opponents begin by first assuming, assuming the earth is a globe and then looking about for some phenomena to support that assumption. This is not scientific, yet it is the way of our best astronomers. They first assume and then try to support their assumptions. That which is most relied on by the Newtonians, I love how they call them the Newtonians, to prove the earth and sea to be globular is the phenomenon of the disappearance of ships at sea. And you know, guys, this has been, this has been disproven in our own day. Like this, this, um, the ships disappearing at sea, this was first started according to historical records, uh, official, the official narrative at Alexandria in Egypt, they built a lighthouse. And, you know, this is where they were really pushing the globe earth narrative in Egypt. And they would say they would see the ships sinking below the horizon and it was proof of the globe earth. And of course the flat earth reawakening blew this out of the water with the, the, the Nikon. And, uh, and now even I've seen like elite scientists admit that, yeah, the, the ships disappearing at sea was not as good of, uh, evidence as we once thought they're, you know, they're, they're not like throwing it out of the books, but they're recognizing that they can't use this as evidence. This is like, in my opinion, we've just uh, destroyed this whole debate, like just blew it out of the water. That which is most relied on by the Newtonians to prove the earth and, and sea to be globular is the phenomenon of the disappearance of ships at sea. The whole of a vessel generally disappears first, and when it does so, it is quietly assumed that the hole has gone down behind a hill of water. That this is a fallacy may often be proved by applying a good telescope. So <laughs> I guess I didn't need the, the, the Nikon. They, they had good telescopes back then. Like they're out there, you know, like, you know, just looking out there and seeing the ships pop back up. When in clear or calm weather, the hole may be brought again into view. <laughs> See, like this is, we were having this discussion in 2015 and they were talking about 1892 or 1893. This is amazing. This shows that other causes than the one imagined operate to cause the disappearance of the lower part of a vessel before the sails, etc., and the upper part are lost to view. We will maintain some of these causes, and first and foremost, we shall have some remarks under the heading of perspective laws. It is a well-known law of perspective that parallel lines, when produced far enough, appear to meet. This may frequently be seen on our railways. You can see this in hallways and everywhere that your perspective, the, you know, the horizon, the ground and the sky meet together, like right at eye level, or wherever you go, right? You keep rising up to mountains, up in the balloons. It's amazing how the earth just keeps rising to your eye level. It's, it's amazing. That, that is something that just amazed me when I came to the flat earth and just kept looking everywhere, my horizon meeting my eyes. This may frequently be seen on railways. Now, if the earth be a plane with the heavens outstretched above it, they ought in the distance to appear to meet. Makes sense. On a globe earth, it should bend down. It never does. They do so appear to meet everywhere in the horizon, however distant. Therefore, the earth and sea form a vast, extended, and circular plane. 
Makes sense. The disappearance of ships at sea can be explained and can only be explained in harmony with these facts and the laws of true perspective. A second perspective law may be stated thus. All straight lines or objects moving in straight lines, which are above the eye of the spectator, seem as they recede to come down to the level of the eye. And all objects or straight lines below the eye as they recede seem to rise until they appear on a level with the spectator's eye or line of sight. And thirdly, all objects ultimately vanish in this line of sight, which appears to be on a level with the eye in what is called the vanishing point. And those objects which are above the eye never fall below the line of sight, and those objects which are below the eye never seem to rise above it. Now let us apply these laws of perspective by referring to the following diagram, illustrating the disappearance of vessels at sea. Uh, the, the diagram will be on the next page. Uh, so let, uh, and this of course is, you know, I, I did some copying and pasting from a, a book to this document. So it's gonna look a little bit different in the book. Let AB represent the line of sight or the height of the horizon, which is always on level with the eye of the spectator in whatsoever position or altitude he may place himself. Let D and E represent the line made by the hole of a vessel and sailing away straight out to sea. And CB be the straight line made by the flag of the vessel at the top of the mast. So you can see right there, you can see line the C uh, at the top, D at the bottom, and then I think B is the uh, the, the 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 horizon. In this position, it will be noticed that the eye, the spectator, is nearer to the level of the hole than it is to the height of the ship's flag. This is a common position. Then, according to the laws of perspective, the line CP being above the eye will seem to descend to a level with the line of sight AB, and the line DE will appear to rise up to it, get both getting lost somewhere in, in it in the distance. But here we must point out a very common error. It is generally supposed that all such lines vanish at the same point, but they do not. It depends upon their position. If a man were to place his eye eight inches above the ground, he would expect to see nothing lying on the ground beyond one mile. But if a large balloon were floating one mile high, it would be visible many miles distant. Uh, you, you guys, have, this is the one of the things that amazed me. You know, you all get on airplanes and you go up to 30,000 feet and just the horizon, it just rises with your eye level. It's unbelievable. It, you, you never see the, the globe begin to bend away. It should. It should be, you know, you should start seeing things leaning away, like the mountains and the buildings and everything like that. Uh, let's see, where was I? If a man were to place his eye eight inches above the ground, he would expect to see nothing lying on the ground beyond one mile. I read this part. But if a large balloon were floating one mile high, it would be visible many miles distant. A wheel eight inches high running on the ground would vanish much earlier than a balloon a mile high. Yet both would vanish on or before reaching the same horizon or line of sight. The higher an object is, the longer it will remain in sight as the distance increases between it and us. This is like, it's like so obvious, you know, elementary what they're talking about, but it, um, it, yeah. And the lower or smaller an object is and the sooner it will reach its proper vanishing point. The same rule applies to objects receding below the eye or line of sight. Now with the angle AED be less than the angle ABC, I hope you guys are following the, uh, the picture above to make, make sense of this. As as in this case it is, it is evident that the, this angle AED with all that is contained in it must be lost to view or reach the vanishing point before the larger angle ABC and that which it contains. In other words, 
the line DE meets the line AB in the vanishing point E before the line CB, which vanishes further off in the point B, its point of contact with the line of sight AB. So that the whole of a vessel in this position, this is kind of a tongue twister. <laughs> so that the whole of a vessel in this position would naturally be lost to view before the upper parts of the, sa uh, of the sails or the flag of the ship had disappeared. In calm weather, on the application of a powerful telescope, this angle would be magnified, and so the whole of the vessel would reappear, which it could not possibly do if it had gone down behind a hill of water. What they're saying here, for anyone who needs caught up, and they're saying if a boat is truly going over the curve of the Earth, you can't, you, a telescope or a camera with a lens, when you're looking, it doesn't go like, it doesn't curve up and over, like you're looking straight out. So if a ship lifts back up, it's not because you're looking over the curve of the Earth. It doesn't work that way. And, and nobody in their right mind actually would actually conclude that. The vessel would be found hole up rather than hold down. Thus, perspective alone would account for a vessel appearing what has been mistakenly called hold down. Other causes often operate to hide the hole of a vessel before the ship's flag and mast are hidden from view. When the weather is clear, the sails and the flag can be seen more easily because they are against a background of clear sky. While the hole of the vessel is down and generally below the eye in a darker and thicker element surrounded by the spray splash constantly upon sailing. They're saying that it makes sense that you can see the top of the ship longer. Um, for lack of time, because we are running out of time, I'm gonna jump ahead. For those of you following, we're gonna go to page 18. Uh, Josh, if you want to turn to page 18, we're going to go to issue number five. This is one I really want to cover tonight, and it's a two-part article, and we might only get through this, and then might have to call it a day. Um, really, what I want to do tonight is give you guys a taste of these of this magnificent literature, and um, they're just such a, for me, just such a joy to read, to, to see people discussing this and making such simple, easy-to-understand logic. Like it, the fact that the earth is flat, you have to overthink it to conclude that the earth is a globe. It, it's so simple and straightforward. Simple, observable science. So they're going to be talking about the passage in Joshua or Yahushua here, the sun standing still. So let's get into this. I need another drink of coffee. If any proof were needed that the Bible teaches the doctrine of a stationary earth and a moving sun and moon, it is given in the 10th chapter of the book of Joshua. Here it is recounted how Joshua, the leader of the Israelites after the death of Moses, and the armies of Israel fought against the five kings of the Amorites and their armies. The Lord also casting great hailstones down from heaven upon the enemies of his chosen people. I have a hard time saying the Lord. I think I'm going to start saying Yahuwah, and you guys will understand why. Uh, then spake Joshua to Yahuwah, in the day when Yahuwah delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou, stand thou still upon, up on Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. People always talk about the sun standing still, but the moon stood still too. And the, the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the nation had avenged themselves of their enemies. Now, although this account is evidently quite as historical as the account of the rest of Israel's doings and battles, yet because the teaching conflicts with the views of men and the theories of modern astronomers, it is tortured and twisted by labored explanations to mean anything and everything but what the word naturally means on the face of them. 
and as though to prove that all these fanciful explanations are off the track, no two expositors are perfectly agreed or give exactly the same explanation of the passage. And what they're saying is, even back in the 1800s, if, if anyone tried to explain this, they're always trying to explain it away. And you have, you know, a dozen different people going up there and giving different theories. None of them agree. It's just like that today. I mean, if you just, if you don't take it for its word that literally the sun stood still and the moon and not, it wasn't the earth standing still, the earth was already still. It didn't need to stand still. I mean, if they were writing this article today, they would be talking about like, uh, I'll be talking about this in a couple of weeks, actually. And uh, with the, the the sheer amount of mock speeds that we apparently move around the sun, not not forgetting the fact that we spin a thousand miles uh, uh, per hour, um, we would be it would be like if it came to a standstill, like our faces would be egg yolk on the walls. There would be no walls. There would be no houses. I mean, it, it's just it's it's an impossible notion that the Earth would stop spinning and then start spinning again. All right. Um, all right. And as though to prove that all these fanciful explanations are off the track, no two expositors are perfectly agreed, as I mentioned, or give exactly the same explanation of the passage. They are only alike in one laudable but misguided intent, and this is to save scriptures from reproach and to harmonize the account with the theories of modern astronomy and the views of so-called scientists. It never seems to enter the minds of these well-meaning expositors to question the truth of this modern science, but only how most plausibly to reconcile with an ancient and biblical cosmogony. This is not as it ought to be. We shall make no such futile attempt. Neither shall we pause to vindicate the character of Israel's God, who will, we believe, do this himself perfectly when the day of final judgment arrives, but we shall proceed to show the unsatisfactory nature of all attempts at reconciling the Bible with modern astronomical theories and boldly challenge any man, either scientist or skeptic, to give us one reasonable and practical proof that the earth has any of the awful motions attributed to it by them. If they cannot do this, and we have hitherto asked for the proof in vain, then we have both right and reason to believe that Joshua was correct in believing with other Bible worthies that the motion of the sun and not of the earth was and is the cause of day and night. The latest effort we have seen at impossible excuse me, at impossible reconciliation calls forth these remarks. We give the writer credit for sincerity and devotion. As he has sent us a copy of his pamphlet, pamphlet, we thank him for it, but he must excuse us pointing out clearly and conscientiously where his effort, like that of others, has failed. His pamphlet is entitled, Joshua Commanding the Sun to Stand Still. <laughs> the Miracle Explained and Defended, a Lecture, by Reverend W. w. Howard, Price 3D, uh, to be obtained from the author, 47 Herman Street, Liverpool. We cordially agree with the opening paragraph in which he states, The subject we have to discuss tonight has engaged great attention for ages. Believers in Revelation have explained and defended the wonderful occurrence with great learning, zeal, and ingenuity, and infidels have made it the favorite object of their scorn and uh, raillery. 
Many theories have been advanced with a view to give satisfaction to faith and remove doubt. And the way in which the event is still regarded today, both among believers and unbelievers, shows that not any of them have met with much success. What he's basically saying is that they are they were trying hard to come up with something where they didn't lose faith. Faith in what? Science and the Bible, right? They have to move them together. Uh, and he's saying they have yet to be successful at it. This is quite true, especially the closing sentence, and we think the present effort is doomed to like failure with former efforts. And for the same reason, lack of faith on the part of believers in revelation and not receiving the account as it stands, and ignorance of true science on the part of infidels, <laughs> the infidels, and others who unreasonably revile what they do not understand and who credulously believe any absurd theory if propounded in learned jargon and uttered in the name of quote-unquote science. Thus, the quote-unquote Christian has generally much too little faith in the all-wise God and his revelation to believe it. So he explains it away. Did you guys get that? They're saying that, you know, because everyone says, this, is this a salvation issue? And what they're doing is, is they're turning the tables and they're saying, you're accusing us of, of being concerned about things that aren't salvation issue. You guys don't even have faith because you don't actually believe this. Like you're trying to explain it away so that you can feel content with your salvation issues. And you don't even believe any of this stuff. And the infidel has a great deal too much faith in ever erring mortals and their philosophy so he proudly scorns and rejects it, rejects it, ouch. But of the two, the infidel is the more consistent for the, what I would say is that it's it's like, um, I actually kind of enjoy atheists in some ways because uh, not always, but a lot of atheists have very uh, like honest assessment of the Bible. They can actually tell you things that what the Bible says. And I'm like, yeah, that is what it says. And Christian's like, no, that's not true. That's not what it says. And so that they're saying that they actually respect the infidels more than a lot of these Christians who are just trying to make the Bible say something that it doesn't actually say. Because back then, the atheists, they were also pointing at the Bible and going, that's a flat earth book, guys. And the Christian's like, no, that's not true. You know, it's we can make it fit with your Copernican revolution. All right, but of the two, the infidel is more consistent. For the Christian expositor, like himself, unquestionably accepts the those astronomical theories which make the word of God of none effect. While the skeptic does not believe in a divine revelation. See, there's the difference there. But Zetetics can boldly challenge the truths of those theories. Yea, more, they can show that even as theories, they are false to nature as well as to the scriptures. And so the infidel's raillery is checked checked at the door and in all reason it ought to be until he becomes sufficiently instructed to offer some decent proof in support of his position so they're going to get into four leading theories here the uh referring to the printed lecture before us we find that mr howard selects four as the leading theories by which this miracle has been explained and which even he himself cannot accept the first is called the poetical theory those who accept this theory, he says, suppose that the hours of sunlight did really appear to them to be lengthened. Someone afterwards expresses feelings in poetry with the usual poetic license, whatever that is, and incorporated his poem in a book of military songs called the Book of Jasher. 
we reject so back then um jasher the, the the book of jasher we have now was just i think maybe coming to the forefront and, and very few people had read it so you know, we could all argue whether the book of jasher we have is a historical one or not back then the common consensus the understanding was they thought that uh, the book of Jasher was a series of, of songs. And personally, I think this is why they did that. You'll, you know, you go to like answers in Genesis or like, or got questions, whatever. And they'll, they'll discount Jasher. They'll say, well, the real Jasher was poetry. You guys know why they do that, right? Because it says in Joshua that the book of Jasher talks about this. So it must be poetry. Get it? Because clearly the sun could not have stood still that's where the theory comes from we reject this exposition for the same reasons as the writer because firstly there is possibly a more reasonable view and secondly the genius of hebrew poetry lends no confirmation to its position and we further cordially agree with him when he adds i have sought all through the bible and have not discovered one instance of a natural event being exalted into a miracle by any of its bards. This inquiry into the veracity of Hebrew poetry has amazed me, made me feel how contrary to, its, to the general view and all their highest inspirations, the Bible bards kept a clear eye upon the sober truth. This, we think, is well and truthfully spoken. The second theory, he says, is called the spiritual theory. There are those who hold the God at the command of Joshua, allow the sun and moon to go on their journey as usual, but in their places, two other bodies of a spiritual kind were slipped in so stealthily that the Israelites were unaware of what was done. Are we talking about Nibiru at this point? <laughs> so apparently they, uh, like a substitute sun and moon came in. So uh, Yahuwah tricked them. He's like, well, I can't really make the sun and moon stand still. That's kind of a miracle that I can't fully pull off. So I'll put an illusion up there to make you think you did. I'm going to, it's like, okay, whatever. Um, <clears throat> this theory commonly held by a guy named Sweden Borgans. Never heard of him other than this paper. The writer very properly rejects his charging God with deception. That would be true. He'd be just deceiving them and assuming an impossibility. He gives his reasons, which those who are interested to know can find by obtaining the pamphlet. Uh, our space compels us to be brief. The next exegesis uh, just, just reviewed is, thirdly, the optical theory. This one should be good. Under the heading, Mr. Howard says, it is true that light is refrangible. Uh, I think that's the word, refrangible. Don't encounter that one too much. And also that we see, not as we think, always straight and direct, but on lines of light. When light in its flight strikes a medium denser than that it has been traveling through, it is turned aside somewhat, and we are led to think that objects are not where they really are. If you thrust a stick into water, it appears to bend at the surface of the water. We may also say that the stars are never where we seem to see them in the heavens, but where they were when the light we see them by left uh, left by them. So, what they're okay. So they're saying that you know when you actually see a, the light of a star, you guys have heard this hundreds of times that that's where the star was, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, right? That it's it's somewhere else now, and uh, yeah. 
it is really, I do find reflections fascinating. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, reflections are relative, right? Like you look at water and that, that reflection, only you can see that reflection. If someone is standing over here, they can't see that reflection. It's, it, it, that's one of the crazy things about a reality. If you stop to think about it, that reflections are like all an illusion in, in a way. There's something that only you can see. So far, we have been happy to agree with Mr. H, but from this, he begins to flounder unconsciously in the meshes of absurd and extravagant philosophical theories. He reaffirms the popular fallacy that the sun is seen in the morning eight minutes before he is above the horizon, that the light from, the, from some stars would require thousands of years to cover the distance between us, and that a star or nebula might be completely annihilated, and yet it would not seem to disappear from its position in the universe till its last beam of light has reached us, and that might be 20,000 years or even longer. He further affirms that the axis of the Earth is inclined to her orbit and that, and that the pole dips so that anyone living at the North Pole would see the sun 12 or 13 days time before he actually rose above the horizon. And they put an <laughs> exclamation point there in parentheses. And moreover, that... <laughs> I think it was like sarcasm on their point, on their part. And moreover, that this would follow from the atmosphere bending the light beams and the North Pole rising by a gentle graduation into the zone of day. Italics are ours. The writer innocently calls this contradiction a fact and says, from this fact, some have argued that the light rays of the sun and moon were bent at Joshua's petition to give him an extra 12 hours light to exterminate the enemy. And he quotes James Austin Bestow. I, I haven't heard any theologians that are still saying that. I mean, that's pretty absurd, but I guess you can try, right? And he quotes James Austin Bestow, who supports this view in his Bible dictionary. However, this theory, though plausible, they put quote unquote plausible, is rejected as delusive or delusional, there being a vast difference between the refraction of a few degrees on the one hand and that of half a circle on the other. So basically what they're saying is, I mean, if there's 24 hours in the day and they're advocating that the sun has now moved past the point of sunset on the horizon an additional 12 hours. And so it is all the way around the globe that the light is bending all the way back around halfway around the globe and touching down on where Joshua is. That's, that's what they're saying to try to make this true. The fourth theory is the astronomical one. Here, of course, the tangle becomes greater than ever. We are told that the, rotor, uh, the rotary motion of the Earth was arrested. The arrested motion was prevented becoming heat. The water in the oceans, seas, lakes, and rivers was kept from obeying its natural laws, and the solar system was guarded against injury. The writer, while agreeing, of course, with the science of the above paragraph, sympathizes with men like Huxley. Oh, there's Huxley. There he is. He ends up here. And Tyndale. And their refusals to accept such an explanation, adding that Professor Tyndale in Fragments of Science remarks, there is scientific imagination as well as an historic imagination. And when by the exercise of the former, the stoppage of the Earth's rotation is clearly realized, the event assumes proportions so vast in comparison with the result to be obtained by it that belief reels under the reflection. The energy here involved in the scientific imagination is equal to that of six trillions 
of horses, working for the whole of the time employed by Joshua in the destruction of his foes. The amount of power thus expended would be sufficient to supply every individual of an army thousand times the strength of that of Joshua, with a thousand times the power of each of Joshua's soldiers, not for the few hours necessary to the extinction of a handful of Amorites, but for millions of years. These calculations are all very pretty, but they are worse than useless, as the Bible does not speak of arresting the earth's motion, but of the sun standing still. Hence, they are utterly beside the mark. But the above quotation serves to show how men of science are led away from the scriptures by, unfaithfully, by unfaithful expositors and a false philosophy until, as Tyndale confesses, belief reels under the reflection. While Christian men and so-called reverend divines who are paid to defend the holy writings play into their hands by ignorantly or cowardly yielding the claims of unfounded astronomical theories so utterly subversive of Bible teaching and true nat natural science. However, it is only fair to the writer of the pamphlet under the consideration to say that he rejects this explanation also, although at the same time, he holds those astronomical theories by which it is supported. He also makes the same mistake of talking about the Earth's motion being arrested instead of that of the suns, for he says, why did not the ocean overflow the land? Run with a pail of water until you come in contact with the wall and observe the effect upon the liquid, how it will dash over the side and the sudden stoppage of the rotary motion of the earth. Okay, what they're talking about right now is like, like they don't even, they don't even understand the seriousness of this. They're, they're giving an example. Imagine if you run with a bucket of water and then you just smack into a wall. What is the water going to do? It's going to go, you know, slush and over the pail and fall out, right? You guys, the effects would be way worse than that. I mean, th there would be no earth left. You can't just, you know, just stop the earth. Like it, everything would be decimated. Everything would be destroyed. There would be no trace of us. It would be egg yolk everywhere. There's just, it's not just what they're talking about here, but only because like th these explanations have become even more implausible now as they have pushed science even further. Um, all right, I'm gonna, uh, for lack of time, we're running out of time. You got the sense here. Let me just read the last paragraph here on page. Um, no, I'll start on, the, on 23 where I was. Well, they say uh, the equator moves nearly 1,100 miles an hour, was brought quickly to a standstill, can't be done. Now that, and they're not even taking into account, they're taking the spin of the earth, but they're not even talking about the earth moving around the sun at this point, which is, even way more than that. You're you're stopping the speed of the spin as well as the the hurtling through space. Now that is altogether and utterly irrelevant. Irrelevance. When when will professed defenders of the Bible let us speak in its own terms? What infidel could wrest the scriptures more from their plain, literal, and grammatical sense? The American infidel Ingersoll. <laughs> the American infidel. <laughs> Ingersoll, hope you guys understand. I'm having fun reading this. Writes writes just in the same state uh, strain respecting this miracle and his so-called mistakes of Moses. Uh oh. But but is but is it not rather a mistake and a grave mistake of Ingersoll, Tyndale, Howard, and company to speak of the Bible arresting the Earth's motion when the account says nothing whatsoever of the kind? 
but distinctly tells us that it was the sun and moon which stood still. Like this is what I'm saying. This is elementary. You're just they're overcomplicating something so simple and straightforward. They may charge the Bible if they like with being contrary to modern science, but we should retort that it is both illogical and unscientific to condemn the Bible on such a charge until the science in question has first been shown and proved to be true. Let them first prove the earth has any motion before talking about the arresting of it. And we want something better than Foucault's pendulum experiment for this, especially as different pendulums will sometimes oscillate in opposite directions. And more, uh, you guys have all heard of Foucault's uh, pendulum. I don't even know if anyone takes that seriously anymore. You know, some people might revert back to it, but I, you know, I, I think that has been shown to be a carnival act. And more especially as practical experiments have already proved that the earth has no such motion as those attributed to it. I mean, it, it's funny, like all these experiments that you guys, they don't, they don't have anything for globe earth on all these experiments. All they have is NASA. That's what they have. They have NASA. They have the rockets that, you know, that they, they, they form that arts of rainbow. They go back down to the ocean. And then whenever you see a Hollywood film, they always shoot straight up. I always wait, you know, like to see them make that arch. They never do in the Hollywood films. They just go straight up. The account of these experiments may be found in Parallax's great work. I talked to you about Parallax earlier tonight. Um, and uh, Samuel uh, Robotham. No, Robotham. Robot. I can't even pronounce it, uh, Rebecca. I always want to say Robotham. But anyways. Robotham. Like, you know, uh, ro ro throwing yeah, like, you hope you don't end up in the bottom of the lake. <laughs> Hope your bottom doesn't get soggy while you row, because that happens too. Because uh, okay, anyway, parallax is great work. Earth not a globe. We have no space now to quote these experiments, as we are present only engaged in showing up the inconsistency of those who rest the plain statements of the holy scriptures to suit the fanciful and absurd theories of modern science, falsely so called. They may yet appear in the Earth Review in due course. If our friends will only come forward and sustain our hands in this unequal conflict, some of them have already appeared to be continued. Now, we're not going to get to part two tonight. That gave you guys a nice taste of this. If we do a part two, uh, Earth Not a Globe, Another Night, we'll, we will be sure to read from the part two. So uh, with what time we have left, I'm going to go through page 28 here and read these two poems, one by Lady Blount uh, and another uh, from an M.A. Buxton. And just kind of show you guys, because they would put a lot of really funny poetry in here. Sometimes it actually, she would write songs and she would actually write original songs in here that, you know, because back then you'd want the sheet music. You didn't have radio, transistor radios. So you would buy this and you would get the sheet music and play Lady Blount songs about um, flat earthism, which is kind of awesome. I don't uh, did that but uh she set she actually they set one to music and her and another gentleman performed it in public and it was very well received and and i guess they did that a few times yeah and she would she was uh she would get there and give debates a lady Blount. she would give public speech she would just travel around giving like killer speeches and stuff people would show up to hear her talk Highly educated by M.A. Buxton. Miss Pallas Eudora von Blurkey, who didn't know chicken from turkey, high Spanish and Greek she could fluently speak, 
but her knowledge of poultry was murky. <laughs> Uh, she could, I'm sure this is going somewhere. Uh, she could name the great uncle of Moses, the dates of the wars of the roses, the reason of things why the Indians wore rings through their red aboriginal noses. I think this is not politically correct anymore. The meaning of Emerson's Brahma, why Shakespeare was wrong in his gra grammar. Gra that's why I'm with Brahma, right? But maybe not grammar. And she went shipping rocks with a little black box and a small geological hammer. She had views upon co-education and the principal needs of the nation. Her glasses were blue and the numbers, the numbers she knew of the stars in each high constellation. She expounded the use of, uh, uh, I guess, Vasily and learned, lectured on Kelsey. Her costume was mannish. Her ways were clannish. Amongst the Colts and the Varsity Fosse. She wrote in it in a handwriting clerky and spoke with an emphasis jerky. High German and Greek, she could fluently speak, but she didn't know chicken from turkey. That's a poetry hour with Noel Joshua Hadley. And then we'll read one more tonight and then we'll kind of close shop on this. The why and because. Now, this one here comes from, of course, Lady uh, Blount, a big contributor to this magazine. A liberty great I beg leave to take, and a question or two I would humbly make. Though scientists laugh, they, make ha they may have to quake, for they cannot stand questions at all. That the earth is a globe, all these learned folks say, a tearing and spinning through space far away at hundreds and thousands of miles in a day like a bright and a big spinning ball. But pray will you tell me how uh, aeronauts, not astronauts, how aeronauts see at high elevations as high as can be a wide concave surface, which proves, sir, to me that the earth is not like a ball. Now, scientists think it, it the great greatest assumption for any to have the audacity, the bumption, I feel like I'm reading a Dr. Seuss book, with mere common sense or ordinary gumption to question their science at all. But tell us, dear scientists, if you are right, how is it old sailors have got such clear sight to pierce beyond your curvature quite some hundreds of feet less or more? Should you ask for a proof of what I have said, you will find that Cape Hatteras, so I, I have read, at a distance of 40 miles off far ahead, can be seen oftentimes to the shore. I actually was just at Cape Hatteras uh, a few weeks ago on vacation. Is the surface of water then flat, sir, all around? In practice, it seems to be flat, but it's found in theory curved and all nature is bound to bow to the scientist's laws. And why points the, and why points the compass if you can divine? But northward and southward and at the same time, if the center is not north, of a plane all in line, pray tell me the why and because. If the center is the north, then the pole is a myth, and the north star is right in the center's zenith. So the compass points level to center forthwith, while the south is the circle all round. For a thousand miles flows the great Nile toward the sea, and falls but a foot, so betwixt, betwixt you and me. The rivers are level as level can be, disproving a spherical ground. 
it's actually a great proof she gives the nile river it goes thousands uh, of miles and it's all flat and we find this with a uh, kind of river canals all over the earth how is it sir science exact science so stated the sun's distance in miles has so differently rated from 24 millions to a hundred dilated and even from less to much more because this one distance so very elastic is reckoned the measuring rod how bombastic to measure star distances vast and fantastic then why is it altered wherefore pray how can the ancients foretell all eclipses as well as the moderns who say what the dip is and even the planist explain where the ship is and bring it back up with a glass <laughs> uh, this needs to be like an illustrated like people say we need to do a children's book they just need to do it with this poem this is like so dr seuss i mean this could have some really awesome uh, illustrations with this and how do folks live at the antipode station and all hanging head downward oh what a sensation she's talking about australia and what's that stuff holding them fast gravitation is it solid or liquid or gas and why when canals and long tunnels are laid no allowance for curvature ever is made man she's just bringing it home like <laughs> <laughs> it's like a grand slam poem right here. Are builders, surveyors, and others afraid of sliding right down the great ball? And why, when a ship is seen living the shore, will she rise to the height of your eye and no more? On mountain or plain, both behind and before, prospectively proving no fall. However high over the sea level one tries, Still higher and higher horizons will rise, and always quite level in line with the eyes, but nowhere the curve of a globe. Galileo, Galileo afforded no proof in his mission when punished, alas, by old Rome's inquisition, but he suffered for teaching a quite false position, so he put on a penitent's robe. The law of Yahuwah is reliable, sure, the Creator's description is perfect and pure, and the word of our God shall forever endure, while the wisdom of wordling shall fall. And heavens above, saith Yahuwah the Most High, the earth is beneath the grand dome of the sky, and under the earth is the water. Then why believe in the infidel's ball? By yours truly, Lady Blount. So I'm going to end there tonight because... I promise Josh we're going to end at a good time in between 8.30 and 9. And there's no way I could finish reading The Sun Standing Still um, and probably make it. So thank you all for being here while I read you some of my, at least entertaining me while I've read you some of my favorite literature. Uh, John Q, it looks like you jumped up here on stage. Did you have anything you wanted to say? Yeah, we have some. I've been taking the questions in Sarah's absence. So we have some questions and comments from the audience. All right, let's do it. All right, the first question comes from Crazy Chicken. Uh, he asks, How did the Zetetics first start assembling? Was it just word of mouth or an event of some type that brought them together? Does anyone know? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, my understanding, okay, so here's here's my thought on this. 
is you guys, you know, all know uh, the mud flood, and we estimate it happened sometime in the 1800s, probably early on. Could have been 1850, for all I know, 1840. We really don't know when the mud flood happened, right? They could have fudged all sorts of numbers in there. And we know that, you know, early photography is showing the landscapes encapsulated in mud. So it might have been later than like 1812, like I estimate. Uh, and I, I believe that, you know, with this whole like, you know, it's kind of like the when you turn on the lights and all the, the new controllers were there and there, the 1800s is one big uh, indoctrination camp. Uh, with, of course, this century is as well, and the last century was, but the 1800s was one big indoctrination camp. You know, as this is going on, as they're running this, you guys know about the World Fairs, all these things. Well, I think what was happening is that within the consciousness of people, you know, we don't even know if, uh, if, you know, Copernicus was a real dude. We really don't know. We can only guess, right? They're, I think within their consciousness, they're going, we're told all these things happened. You know, we're told about, you know, Galileo and Copernicus and uh, they, they talk about the Newtonians, Isaac Newton, but there's something, there's something inherently not right about this. It doesn't feel right. Like there was this a movement of people very much like today. They're just starting to like, like they, they couldn't erase all of their, their inner consciousness on this. And so the first guy we see that pops up by all accounts, according to what we have of the records, was Samuel uh, Robottom. Did I get it right, Rebecca? Robottom. And yeah, you did. And these people were all, you know, it was the 1800s version of the internet now, where, you know, and social media. These people were all corresponding with each other. Um, they would, you know, a bunch of them were printing pamphlets. And that's how they got the idea for the paper to begin with, because they were like, you know, pamphlets is not enough. We need to collect all these pamphlets and put all this information out there. So, but they were literally writing letters back and forth, you yeah. know, not just in one country, but all over the earth. And, um, and it was really spreading word of mouth because they would pass these things around. So that that's how it all got started, and it kind of exploded, I think, in the 1890s. Um, you know, they got when they collectively started passing it around in a concerted effort. To make a to go off of what Rebecca said, the they were how organized they were. All right, these people are in contact in the 1800s. We we don't have airplanes yet, according to the official narrative. Right, we have boats. But not even the huge ocean liners like you know we would get with the Titanic. We have boats, and they're writing letters to people in Australia, uh, Canada, uh, London, India, all over United States. And the people in this room right now, if if this Discord group were to crash, I don't even have your information. I have a few of you on my speed dial on my phone. I don't know where you live. I don't have your address. I don't have your email. I'm not contact. I don't know how to contact you guys. These people were, you know, they had records of where everyone lived. They were contacting each other. They were writing letter after letter. I mean, just writing letters. They, there was an art form back then. And so um, the thing is with Samuel Robottom is that he appears on the scene and he kind of has a lot of knowledge. I don't know if this guy built up from the ground floor up. I don't, that's the way the official narrative puts it. I don't really know if that's true uh there's something going on here and he kind of just shows up with the conviction and he's got all this knowledge 
Interestingly, uh, he was uh, he he sold patent medicine. That's what he did as a living was sold patent medicine. So, you know, I, I don't know how he had time to do all this stuff. He was a really busy guy. And uh, and then so from yeah, so from Robotom it goes to John Hamden. And John Hamden was the guy you guys have all heard about the Bedford Canal. You guys all have heard about it at some point in your life. He was the guy that did the Bedford Canal. And Lady Blunt, uh Lady Blount did some successful tests there afterwards as well. Uh so he was like the rallying cry. So when Samuel Robottom died, the parallax, he had this body of work and people are like, what now? What do we do? And then uh, John Hampton, he's the next, he's his disciple. He dies at you know, the second generation. They all kind of die close to each other. And it's like, well, looks like the whole movement's done, done now. And that's when they got the rallying cry to like, okay, well, let's get this paper going. Let's document this. So uh, John, what do you got next? Yep. Um, so let's see here. That was the only question, but a couple of comments. Um, Thank you, Andrew, so, for asking the only question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, Josh was saying that, you know, you should, you know, his opinion, you should give some grace to yourself about uh, using the, the, uh, the word Lord um, when they are quoting from the Bible. Uh, he, that we should change it then because that's the entire point. But the author's use of names ought not to be changed because that is what the author wrote. It is not a translation issue on the surface. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, Josh. And um, th this is, we had this discussion early on with Rebecca and I'm like, we're not, we're keep, you know, we're not trying to make anything politically correct here or, you know, modernize. We're showing exactly where they were at that point in history, what their thought process was. And it was ahead of their time as it was. I mean, it, it's still like, it's, some of the stuff they're saying is still ahead of obviously a lot of the people out there. So, but yeah, I mean, personally, you know, I I, I can I can read God, I can read Jesus, things like that, but I do struggle with the Lord uh, saying that. And you guys, you know, know probably know the reasons why. Uh, it could double for the name of Baal. And so I, I just, I started doing that. I'm like, uh, I, I'm just going to say who or something like that. So you guys hopefully know the reason why. But yeah, thank you for that, uh, Josh. We have, oh, go ahead. We have like one more, right? Uh, yeah, one more. Um, yeah. This um, this is a thought that I had. I, I thought it was interesting how you, you mentioned that uh, about how discovering the flat earth leads to discovering the truth of Torah. And that's that's exactly what what it was for me um, as well. I was actually presented with the truth of Torah by a Seventh Day Adventist pamphlet when I was like I don't know ten, eleven, twelve years old, something like that. I, they left it on our in our mailbox, and I, I found it. And I was you know I went to my mother. I'm like, hey, this makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, we we should be keeping the the Sabbath on Saturday. You know, that's what it says. And you know. I love her, but in that moment, she was acting as a handler. Like, you know, I don't think it was nefarious, but, you know, she, she'd been handled by her pastors all her life, right? And so at that moment, she acted as my handler and dissuaded me of that of that heretical notion. And it was not until I discovered Flat Earth that eventually, um, you know, using that um, critical thinking allowed me to realize the truth of Torah. 
Yeah, um, you know, on that note, and that's, I mean, they they obviously insinuated that in there. They're like, if you can't believe Genesis, you're not going to believe Exodus, right? And that's, we all know where that goes. The Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How much of the church actually believes any of that? Uh, and so absolutely, because when you when you realize that the the Bible is when he's when the most high is the, the word of Yahuwah is true in his testimony, you're like you see it in a whole new light. And then, you know, the the the, the Torah is where it really crackles with this animation of of like it's a living, breathing document, and it's still alive today. Uh, but I will say on that note too, uh, John, thank you for bringing that up. And this is nothing to do with anybody's parent or anything like that. Uh, but I I do believe that um, you know one of the things I was researching this week. I'll be giving a presentation in a couple of weeks. Is what you know part of Hasatan's role. Is that he was he's brought here according to uh, the apocalypse of Abraham for two reasons. One is to assure the destruction of the wicked, and two to test the righteous to see if the righteous are truly worthy, to see if they're a wheat or a tear. And you know, there's Hasatan as a spiritual reality, but there are also people around us, and I am convinced. You know, you to use the word handler, uh, John, which is spot on. But I am convinced that there are many people that are put into our lives. And this is, you know, it's kind of a sad thought in some ways, but there are some people that are put into our lives to test us. It's, it's all part of the plan. Like they may not be purpose for salvation. Now, some people might attack me on that. That's bad theology. I don't know. But it's just something I see in so many people's lives by people's testimonies, as well as my own life. As I, my wife's testimony, all these people we talked about, and they they just see these people in their lives, and they're just there to be the um, the to play the role of the Satan, the the accuser, but also the um, the what's what's the word I'm looking for? It's getting late here. The not the oppressor, but the um, you know the opposition, right? Uh, to be there to to try to keep us from doing the right thing. And we need to be careful of that because we will see that the more we try to be righteous and do the right thing, the more we're going to encounter these people, and they're there just to oppose us, um, to to you know say how stupid this is, and you know you're not actually doing God's will and that kind of stuff. Now it is going on nine o'clock, and I promised Josh that we would end at this hour, and I respect that he's got to go in the gym early in the morning. I I have to too. Uh, not in the morning, but I, you know, I'm trying to go and swim about a mile per day. And I know that that takes a lot of devotion from anybody who's trying to, uh, you know, look good for their, their wives or the ladies in general. Um, so we're going to stop here tonight. Rebecca, was there anything else you wanted to add? If not, well, that's okay. I, I, I just wanted to say that I will be completing volume three. I I can't imagine doing volumes one and two and leaving the third one undone. So that's something that, you know, I'm not sure how soon, because that, that is a very time consuming uh, task. Those are difficult to edit simply because of the source material. You know, it, it's, it's hard to read and it doesn't copy and paste over very well. So, but I, I will absolutely finish this project and, um, <laughs> What what Rebecca is saying is that this was not a copy and paste job that we did. Like it was very lifting it out of the, the photocopies 
on the paper was a very tedious work. Volume two took Rebecca like, like three months of like full-time work. It was a lot of work uh, that she put into this. And something, you know, Lady Blount went on after Earth Not a Globe to other publications that were flat earth based, but she did one that was Sabbath based. And I would love to get more of those, but I've only found a few copies here and there. Like it's not complete. Uh, those obviously maybe were not as popular, not preserved. I would like to think they're out there somewhere and maybe I'll get to those someday. But with that, we are going to officially close this tonight. Thank you everybody for showing up. I can't believe we only got through 20 pages out of a 76 page document that I collected. So clearly we can finish this and do this again one week of Earth Not a Globe uh, Volume 2 or Part 2 discussion. And uh, that's it everybody. So I will meet you guys over in the, the voice chat room. And um, Shalom, and let the art, let the uh, after party begin. <laughs>